Tonight, we're going to look in some detail about into what really happened to Jesus. And I'm going to read this because there are a lot of big words, and I don't want to miss anything, but I want you to hear and understand and experience what was happening at the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, Rachel, we're ready. Crucifixion was probably the most horrible form of capital punishment ever devised by man. It was employed by the Persians somewhere around 522 B.C., and Darius had 3,000 Babylonians crucified when he conquered that territory. Later, it was employed by the Greeks. Following the destruction of Tyre, Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 men of military age. The Jews even, even used crucifixion on occasion. In the interbiblical age, Alexander Janius, who was from around 103 to 76 BC, crucified 800 Pharisees who had been involved in a revolt. But the Romans were most noted for the practice. In 71 BC, following a slave revolt in Rome, 6,000 recaptured slaves were crucified on the Appian Way leading to the city. The prospective crucifixion victim, as a rule, was first subjected to flagellation, which is a beating with this three-thronged whip, and it was made of plated, you know, or braided leather, and it was studded with bone and metal. So at the end of each one of those pieces of leather was, were shards of bone and metal pieces. It's like shrapnel on the end. The victim was stripped naked and then was secured with leather ties. He was then beaten from his upper back to the lower extremities of his legs. The flesh was flayed from the muscle. Eventually, muscle could be shredded from the bone. The bones of the back, including the spinal column, might well be exposed in a bloody mass. Not infrequently, these whippings were fatal. In an article which appeared a few years back in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. W. Edwards wrote these words. The severe scourging, with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss, most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, hemi-tidro—here we go. I'm going to need Mary on this one. Hematidrosis, that was my best shot at that big word, had rendered his skin particularly tender, lots of blood. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. One thing that I read once was that the 39 lashes wasn't necessarily 39 lashes. What it actually meant was whip him, beat this person until there isn't an inch strip of flesh on them that hasn't been torn. That's what 39 lashes was. Hmm. A thousand years before Jesus' birth, David, speaking on behalf of the coming Messiah, described the ordeal of the crucifixion. David wrote, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. They're all around me. A company of evildoers have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare up at me. They part my garments among them. And upon my vesture do they cast lots. That's Psalm 22. The prophetic details in connection with the crucifixion of Jesus are absolutely amazing. Note the following abbreviated list of prophetic details. Jesus' back was to be beaten. And I have scriptural references for these. Um, I'll just read what the reference is. So if you want that, you can have that. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And his hands and feet were pierced. Psalm 22:16. His garments would be divided. Psalm 22:18. And he would be given vinegar and gall to quench his thirst, Psalm 69, 21. Though it was common to break the legs of the victim, John 19, 32, such did not occur in Jesus' case because the Lord was the antitype of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, 46 and other scriptures. Two, a crucified person normally was not given a burial. The body was left to rot or be devoured by animals, but Jesus by divine decree, was interred in the tomb of a wealthy Jew, Isaiah 53, 9, and Matthew 27, 57. These prophecies are powerful evidence of the divine origin of the Bible. During the first century, the Jews employed four methods of capital punishment, stoning, burning, decapitation, and strangulation. But Jesus was executed according to the Roman procedure. Not the Jewish, but the Roman. Okay? Aside from the political considerations, there were reasons for this. First, Christ had to die in some fashion that involved the shedding of his blood, without which there could be no remission of sins. And so instead of the Jewish people pronouncing the judgment, it had to go to the Romans. Since the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, human beings, by virtue of our transgression, we forfeited our right to live. However, in the marvelous sacred scheme of things, it was determined that God's Son would offer his life in exchange for man's. Inasmuch as the life resides in the blood, it was necessary for the Lord to shed his blood to effect redemption. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah's soul life, which is the same word that was used for the life that resided in the blood, being poured out into death. Centuries later, the Savior said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto the remission of sins. The crucifixion thus accounted a method of death consistent with the heavenly plan. Second, under the Old Testament regime, hanging a body upon a tree was a special token of accursedness. He that is hanged is accursed of God. It's noted that it is a public shaming. It is a punishment designed for the guiltiest of criminals. By his death upon the cross, the Savior then was made a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. It's significant that the cross is designated as a tree several times in the New Testament. 
The Lord's death by means of the crucifixion upon the cross, therefore, was a fitting symbol of the fact that he was bearing the curse and the shame of sin for the human family. All who so choose may take advantage of that wonderful gift by being immersed into Jesus' death. Romans 6, 3 through 4. And this is what that says. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Oh, we need to be back mm, very beginning. So it's easy to take the crucifixion of Jesus more or less for granted, to grow callous, <laughs> to think it's not that big a thing. I mean, after all, we wear jewelry that look like crosses. We have pretty, ornate things that are everywhere. Even cathedrals and big churches that have lovely crosses. They're polished and beautiful. But the truth is, it was a horror. It was terrible. The gospel writers don't help much about that. And the reason that they don't is that in their lifetime, crucifixion was such a normal thing that everyone knew of the horrors of crucifixion. They'd seen it. They'd actually heard the agony with their own ears. So now, it didn't have to be written. You said crucifixion, it brought up memories. But this is what we need to know. This is, these are the words that the evangelist wrote, Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. Despite the silence of the Gospels on Christ's crucifixion, it's been in more books than any, any other topic. So today, we're going to look into this infinite physiological and spiritual suffering of the incarnate God in atonement for us. More than any words could ever express, because it wasn't just my sin, and it wasn't just your sin, it wasn't just my sickness, and it wasn't just your sickness, it wasn't just the horrible things that we've done, or the horrible things that have been done to us. It wasn't any of that. It was all of that. And it was all of that, not just with all the people, the billions on the earth today, but all of those who've gone before us all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way forward till Jesus comes again. All of that sin, all of that torture, all of the uh, inhumane treatment and the, the terrible abuse, the alcoholism and the drug addiction and the pornography and the sexual innuendo and all of the stuff that's happened, the terrible things that we've done to one another. What happened to you today? It's all of that, all the cancer, all the heart attacks, all the sickness, all the tumors and the migraines and every curse that's ever been spoken to you about you, that you've spoken over someone else, or that's been spoken into the existence of any person. 
not just today, but for all of creation and all of humankind and all of that, Jesus experienced on his cross that day. If you thought it hurt what he did to you, if you thought the way she was was the worst that could ever be, Jesus experienced that on the cross. Don't think he doesn't know. He carried the sin, and he felt every stinging word, every slap, every bullet, every pain. But we aren't just going to look at that. The physical passion of Christ began in Gethsemane. So a lot of the aspects of his first suffering, the one which is... Um, physiological interest is this bloody sweat when he was down and he was praying and this sweat was just pouring down. And it says in Luke, and being in an agony, he prayed the longer and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away the phenomenon of bloody sweat apparently under the mistaken impression that it simply doesn't occur. But a great deal of effort could be saved by consulting the medical literature. It's a reality that happens. doesn't happen often, but it's called, I'm going to try it again, hematidrosis. Hematidrosis, or bloody sweat. And it's a well-documented thing. Under great emotional stress, the tiny little capillaries, the tiniest blood vessels in the sweat glands can break and it mixes the blood with the sweat that comes out of the pores. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock, just in the garden before anything happened. Although Jesus' betrayal and arrest are important portions of the Passion story, the next event in the account, which is significant from a medical perspective, is his trial before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. Here, the first physical trauma was inflicted, a soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him, mockingly taunted him to identify them as he passed, each one passed by, and they spit on him and struck him in the face. And then the next morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated and worn out from a sleepless night, Jesus was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia, the seat of the government of Pontius Pilate. We're familiar with what Pilate did. We read about it tonight. But it was then that the crowd cried out, that angry crowd, and they said, we want a murderer. We'd rather have someone out on our streets who murders and incites riots and gets people riled up who might have even murdered my own father. I'd rather have him. Crucify this man. Just crucify him. And so preparations were made for Jesus, scourging and, and the beating that was going to happen. And that stripping of the clothes and tying his hands to a post, and then that legionnaire came forward. But before they did that, they took this crown of thorns, right? Now, the, the thorns, you see how long those are? They were generally three, four inches long. The crown of thorns that I have was made out of something that I had that had thorns. And I'd like you to just take that. 
And think about what that would feel like if it were put on your head and then pressed down really hard, really fast. And that one only has thorns this big. We're talking about thorns like this. Have you ever had a cut on your head or seen someone who's had a head wound? Have you ever nicked yourself shaving? Truth be told, those head wounds bleed. They bleed a lot. You get a cut over your eye and it bleeds and you think you're going to die. And it's just a little cut over your eye. But that's what happened with Jesus. When he was mocked, that crown of thorns was put on. And they took those flexible branches. When I made that one out of what I call bougainvillea, some call it differently. But when I made that, it was very green and very flexible. And my dad kind of helped me because the minute I'd get this part here, the other would go and poke me here. And it was not a fun experience, but it was nothing. Now, after this, the crown went into his scalp, and then there was copious bleeding as the thorns pierced every vascular tissue. After the mocking and striking him in the face, the soldiers took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving those thorns deeper into his scalp. And finally, they tired of their sadistic sport and tore the robe from his back. The robe had already become adherent after he had been whipped. And those whips, at first the weighted thongs, they would just come down and they would cut through the skin only. But as they kept going, it would go deeper and deeper and deeper until those capillaries and veins of the skin finally started spurting arterial blood. You know the difference? Arterial blood has the pressure from the heart, and it spurts. People actually, this is very graphic. I hope you're okay. People actually bleed out from that when the arteries are exposed. And then, finally, those, that skin would just hang in long ribbons going down the back until it was just this, this person was just a mass of bleeding flesh. It was after they did that that they added that insult to injury and put the thorn on his heads. And after that, that they had put a robe on him and it started to stick. You ever pull a Band-Aid off? Ow. Think of your whole back. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans apparently gave him his garments back, and then they put the heavy patibulum of the cross. Now that part is where we need to move that slide. Hmm. Rachel, are you there? There you go. And that heavy patibulum that was the crossbar would have been on his shoulders. It was the procession. There he is with his robe on and being literally torn, right? And then go on to the next slide, if you would. They would head across this, this procession of people with the condemned Jesus, two thieves, and the execution detail of the Roman soldiers headed by a centurion. They would head slowly along that route that today they call the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And in spite of Jesus' efforts to walk straight up, the weight of that heavy wooden beam together with the shock that was already in him was too much, and he stumbled. 
And that's where he fell. And that rough wooden beam gouged into his lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders, and he tried to rise, but his human muscles had been pushed beyond their endurance. So the centurion wanted to see this crucifixion go on. He got someone, a North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. And Jesus followed, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha was finally done. The, think about 650 yards, six and a half football fields. The prisoner was again stripped of his clothing except for a loincloth, which was allowed the Jews. And the crucifixion began. Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which was kind of a mild analgesic to kind of deaden the pain. Um, but he said, huh. And Simon was ordered to place the patibulum on the ground, and Jesus was quickly thrown backward. Let's go to the next slide. With his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire felt for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drove a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist. That shows the patibulum, the bar that's going across that he had to carry. Let's go to the next one then, Rachel. Please. And those nails then were being hammered into the wrist until the tendon would tear and break forcing Jesus to use his back muscles to support himself so that he could breathe. So when you're there, you're held up by the things in your wrist, right? But you, when you go down like this, your, your chest caves in and your lungs can't expand. So you can't breathe unless you push yourself up again. So after driving that first nail into Jesus' wrist and deep into the wood of the cross, the Roman soldier would move quickly to the other side to drive the second six to eight inch long spike. Let's go to the next one, Rachel, into the hand of Jesus. And being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. So he wasn't like this. He was like this. And... At that point, at the top above him was the sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. These are actual spikes that were used, not necessarily for Jesus, but in crucifixion. Let's go to the next slide. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot. With both feet extended and toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each leaving the knees moderately flexed, and in this way he was forced to support himself on the single nail that impaled his feet to the cross. Jesus couldn't support himself with his legs for long because of the pain, so he was forced to alternate between arching his back and using his legs just to continue to breathe. Ah. Jesus was being crucified. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, we'll go to the next slide. It was excruciating, and fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms. Maybe that one right there, you can see where there's a nerve that goes all the way up the arm, and that nail is put right through where those ner that nerve bundle is. The nails in the wrists were, being, were putting pressure on the median nerve, and large nerve trunks which go, 
the mid wrist into the hand. And as he pushed himself forward to avoid this stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. And then let's go to the next. Well, there you go. Right there. You can see the nail on his feet. So this shows the motion that he had to take to breathe. And the pain would be excruciating, and he would let it down again. There was this searing agony of the nail that tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of this feet. And at this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. So hanging by the arm and the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest were paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to expand and act. So air could be drawn into the lungs, but it couldn't be exhaled. I used to like to play the harmonica. And I would get myself in a pickle sometimes because playing the harmonica to get different tones, you have to either suck in or blow out, suck in or blow out. And some songs, they just have you suck, 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 and you never blow out. And finally you're, <gasps> and you can't make any more tone because there's no more room for your lungs to expand. And that's what happened to Jesus. But it wasn't a harmonica. So here he was, and he couldn't expand his lungs. He couldn't get them any farther, and he couldn't exhale. So Jesus fought to raise himself up in order to get even one short breath out and in. And finally, the carbon dioxide level increased in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subsided. And now we get to a point where Jesus begins to say his last words. Spasmodically, he pushed himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen, and it was probably during these times that he uttered seven short sentences. We'll go to the next slide, if you would. The first, he was looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his seamless garment, and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The second, he said to the penitent thief, today, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. The third, looking down at Mary, his mother, he said, woman, look at your son. And then turning to the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John, the beloved apostle, he said, behold your mother. He suffered hours of limitless pain and cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down against those rough timbers of the cross. And then another agony began, a deep, crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. The prophecy in Psalm 22:14 that we heard was being fulfilled. I'm being poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. The end was rapidly approaching, and the loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. 
the markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasped his fifth cry, I thirst. Again, we read in that Psalm 22, my strength is dried up, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you brought me into the dust of death. Jesus had no more blood. He'd bled out from his wounds. The human adult body has about three and a half liters, just less than a gallon of blood. Jesus poured all three and a half liters of his blood. He had three nails hammered into his members, a crown of thorns on his head, and beyond that, a Roman soldier who stabbed a spear into his chest. All this after he'd been beaten so severely that the cat of nine tails had torn the flesh from his body and face. A sponge soaked in this cheap, sour wine that they called Pasca. It was a staple drink of the Roman legionnaires. It was lifted up to Jesus' lips. His body was now in extremis, and he could feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brought forth his sixth word and possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement had been completed. And we'll go to the next slide. Finally, after three hours of grueling suffering, he could allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again pressed his torn feet against the nail, strengthened his legs, took a deeper breath, and uttered his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by crucifracture or the breaking of the bones of the leg. And this prevented the victim from pushing himself upward, and so the tension couldn't be, re be relieved in the muscles of the chest, and they quickly suffocated. The legs of the two thieves were broken, but when the soldiers approached Jesus, they saw that they didn't need to do that. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs, upward through the pericardium, so through that sack of, that surrounds the heart, and into the heart. And John 19.34 says, And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sack surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. In these events, we have seen a glimpse of the epitome of evil that can exhibit one man toward another and men toward God. This is an ugly sight, men and women. Let me just include myself in that. It's an ugly sight, and it is likely to leave us despondent and depressed as we realize that we, too, have played a role in this most horrible and horrific event. But the crucifixion was not the end of the story. How grateful we can be that we have a sequel, a glimpse of the infinite mercy of God toward all of us, the gift of atonement, the miracle of the resurrection, and the expectation of resurrection after death. One of the things that I think is so huge to understand in this is the role that we've all played. 
there's not a one of us that hasn't been a part of this experience that we just talked about, and it was horrific. Any harsh word that I've said, Jesus heard and took in. Today when someone said something and I felt I could have taken offense and I felt inside of me this old man, this old man, the old person I used to be, wanting to come out and say, uh-uh, that's not right. That is, and, and set them straight. I remembered something that was so important, and that is that I crucified. I have been crucified on that same cross with Jesus. And that old person died. And I don't let dead men come up. I leave dead men in graves. I don't play with them, I don't entertain them, and I certainly don't talk with them. But what I do know is that there's a new man, a new person inside of me that is filled with the life that the Lord has given, the life of the Holy Spirit, and his strength to be able at that moment to shut my mouth. His strength to be able to practice what it means to be kind in the face of false accusation, to be gentle and to practice that self-control because when he was crucified, so was I. So were you. He didn't do this so that we would sit here and listen to this and say, oh, what a horrible person I am. He did it so we could say, oh, what a horrible person I used to be. But no more. Because by the grace and the loving kindness of Jesus and our God, it isn't that way anymore. But we have to know and believe that Jesus died and that there is a part that we played and that we played that role from beginning until the very end, and we're with Jesus there. 